This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Eric Hobsbawm, everybody's favorite Marxist historian. His books have been translated into 50 languages and sold millions of copies. He died in 2012. Now he's the subject of a terrific biography by Richard J. Evans. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, what can we do to reduce the speed of climate change? Bill McKibben was one of the first people to warn of the dangers of global warming 30 years ago with his book, The End of Nature. After that, he founded the environmental organization 350.org, and then he wrote 15 books and hundreds of articles and essays, many of them for The New Yorker, some for The Nation. He's also been teaching at Middlebury College in Vermont, and now he has a new book out. It's called Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Bill McKibben, welcome back. It's good to be with you as always. Your new book, Falter, doesn't open with the big picture of global warming. It doesn't open with rising sea levels and species extinction and impending disaster. Instead, you start with roofing materials. Consider <laughs> the asphalt shingle, you say. Wow. So uh, what do we learn if we start by considering the asphalt shingle? Well, you know, the point that I was trying to make in those first few pages is what a complicated, diverse, complex, and in many ways remarkable game it is that humans have figured out how to play, that all the things we're doing are quite remarkable and quite vulnerable to disruption. I still felt like roofs were a good place to start because they're the most mundane thing in the world, but they illustrate dramatically the million different steps and uh, that you have to go through to do something even as, as mundane as put a roof on your house. And I think we underappreciate the vulnerability of the world that we have built. I started 
sensing this 30, 30 years ago this year that I wrote The End of Nature, which was the first book about climate change. And at the time, it was almost impossible to get anyone to focus on the fact that the world's physical stability should not be taken for granted. 30 years have passed, and that's, I'm afraid, now abundantly clear as we endure record storms, record floods, record fire, forest fires, record everything. Part of this book is about that, and part of it is about the new technologies that are now on the horizon that seem to me to level some pretty serious threats, too. The two that I really focus on uh, in the third part of the book are uh, human genetic engineering and very advanced forms of artificial intelligence, both which I think have a have some chance of leeching the meaning out of or or ending this graceful dance that we call human civilization. Well, I want to stick with the asphalt shingle for one minute more because mm. the asphalt in the asphalt shingle has to come from someplace, and the asphalt could be coming from the Alberta tar sands. Have you been to the Alberta tar sands? What's, what's it like up I there? I have. It's the single ugliest scar probably on the face of the whole earth. There's admittedly many places that vie for that, but I don't know if any place has quite managed it on the scale of the tar sands. No place that I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. You can see it without traveling there. Go look on Google Earth in the area around Fort McMurray in the northern part of Alberta. And it just a desolation that stretches literally forever. You know, um, not only is it foreboding looking, sort of Mordor-like. The biggest dams on Earth hold back the tailing ponds from the tar sands mining. Not only does it look horrible, it sounds horrible the whole time you're there, because if a bird ever landed on those tailing ponds, it would die. There are cannons firing around the clock to try and scare them away wow. uh, every few seconds. So it, you have the very strong sense that you're in a war zone and that nature is losing the war decisively. Well, your new book, Falter, of course, says things are looking pretty bad for humans right now. But of course, there's an opposing school of thought, which you can find in a dozen books and a hundred TED Talks, that things are getting better. The whole world is getting better. There's less infant mortality today. People are living longer. More people are literate than have ever been liter literate before in the history of the world. Of the 55 million people who died around the world in 2012, only 120,000 of them died in wars. This, of course, is the kind of view we associate with the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, he says people should be happy about everything that's happened that's so good. He says people like uh, you and I guess me just seem to, quote, bitch, moan, whine, carp, and kvetch. Steven Pinker is optimistic about our future, he says, because, and I'm going to quote now, so far humanity has made a lot of progress solving what seemed like intractable problems, close quote. What do you say to Steven Pinker? It's not that he's completely wrong. We actually have made enormous progress on certain things over the last 30 or 40 years. And that makes it all the more tragic that we're now seeing that, pro that progress begin to disappear in the wake of very rapid physical deterioration. In fact, after several years, several maybe more than a decade of steady decline, the number of hungry people on Earth went up last year because of climate change and associated natural catastrophes. 
after a decade of fairly steady decline. The uh, incidence of child labor went up again last year because of climate change and other shocks like it that inevitably end up with impoverished families putting kids to work. This is, of course, if we keep on current trends, is only going to get worse, much worse. Uh, you know, so far, look what happened when, say, two million migrants left Syria as a result of the civil war there, a civil war that, by the way, was triggered at least in part by the least worst drought in the history of what we once called the Fertile Crescent. Two million migrants leaving was enough to discombobulate the politics of, of Western Europe, just as uh, a smaller number of migrants leaving the drought-stricken highlands of Honduras and Guatemala have been enough to help discombobulate the politics of our country. Now figure that the UN's low prediction for climate migrants by mid-century is 200 million, and their high prediction is a billion. So ask yourself how much development, how much progress, how much anything we're going to be getting in a world like that. So we've said that you wrote the first book on pretty much the same topic 30 years ago. That was the end of nature. I guess yes. this book could have been called I Told You So, but uh, <laughs> you decided not to take that course. So it, it is striking that for 30 years we knew that climate change was coming, and a lot of people will tell you we did nothing. I'd like to look a little more closely at the we in that sentence. There's there's you and me, and then there's the people who ran Exxon. Yeah, uh, look, if, if you'd asked me 30 years ago, one of the things I would not have expected was how slow we would be to react as civilizations. And for a while, that really perplexed me. It's come much clearer into focus in recent years. As you know, great investigative reporting at places like the LA Times and the Pulitzer Prize winning website Inside Climate News and Columbia Journalism School revealed over the last few years that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change and knew it back in the 1980s, and that they believed what their scientists were telling them. I mean, Exxon started building all its drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level it knew was coming. But, of course, the thing they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Just the opposite, they spent billions of dollars building the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that has spread with relentless efficiency, the lie that science was unsure about climate change. And you can measure the results of that lie by the fact that the man in the White House right now believes that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese, mm. a, a view so delusional that, you know, if someone started muttering it to you on a seated on a public bus, you'd get up and change seats, you know. Um, so that's where we are. I mean, that's how we've managed to wait. We've had a 30-year completely phony debate about whether global warming was real, a debate that both sides knew the answer to when it began. It's just one of them was content to lie about it in an effort to preserve its business model. Well, let's talk about what is to be done now to slow the pace of climate change. I know that uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, starting April 22nd, Harvard Heat Week is coming. The goal of Harvard Heat Week is to put the heat on Harvard to divest from fossil fuels. 
Well, let's talk about the large climate landscape of which that's a one part. We're in a climate moment now. There's no question, and you can see it coming from all directions, whether it's the Extinction Rebellion that brought traffic to a crawl in London uh, in recent days, whether it's the millions of school kids who are walking out of school following the lead of Greta Thunberg in Sweden, whether it's the young people pushing the Green New Deal here in this country with increasing success, whether it's the divestment movement now sort of cresting, uh, we've reached the point where $8 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios uh, have divested in part or in whole from coal and oil and gas to the point where it's really putting the hurt on the industry. There was a big story in Politico a couple of weeks ago about the heads of all the coal companies saying they could no longer raise capital. Uh, they just were not investment funds that were willing to give them money because they divested. And that's, you know, one more powerful part of this. It would be, of course, good if Harvard joined in, belated though they would be at this point, but it'll be good to be just raising the issue with the uh, rich, powerful, and out-of-touch people who run that institution. Well, there are some people who wish that Exxon could change, who who think the logic uh, of, of making money is that there's plenty of money to be made in alternative energy, and they wonder why don't the big oil and gas corporations decide that they should take the lead in alternative energy. Does Exxon have to hate solar panels? Well, the answer to that one is actually really interesting, I think. Yes, there's money to be made in the next energy future. People are going to get rich putting up solar panels. But there's not Exxon-scale money to be made. And if you think about it for a minute, you'll realize why. Once you get the solar panels up on the roof... The energy comes for free when the sun rises every morning. Good point. From Exxon's point of view, that's the stupidest business model you could imagine. <laughs> They've spent 100 years charging people more every month for what they get. So they've tried everything they can to beat back the rise of renewable energy, they and the utilities. Eventually, they're going to lose. The price of wind and sun just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. It's now the cheapest way to generate an electron in the world. And that's eroding the fossil fuel company's power slowly. The trouble is slowly, because we need it now to go quickly. 50 years from now, we're going to run the world on sun and wind. The question is, is it going to be a completely broken world that we're running on sun and wind, or will we have made the transition in time to avert the absolute worst possible outcomes? We're already going to be in some trouble. There's no stopping global warming. That's not one of the options on the menu, but there may be still some opportunity to slow it down. So let's talk for as our last topic here about how to find the right balance between fear and hope. I know from everything you've said, everything you've written, you are not optimistic about the human game, but you do have reasons for hope. Uh, how do you balance these? Well, I mean, I think that uh, that you've got to get up and fight every morning. And I think the fact that there is this movement building is a very, very good sign. It's what I and others have worked hard for many years to build, and now we see it starting to come true. I worry that we waited too long to get started sometimes, and 
that the momentum of climate change is very, very grave indeed. But at least we're starting to engage the question now. And what option does one have but to hope and to work hard uh, until the scientists tell us that there's no point in it anymore? And uh, we're not at that point yet. Uh, the best science indicates we have a window, albeit a fairly narrow one that's clearly closing rapidly, to still make some fundamental change. The IPCC, in its report last September, gave us a 12, now 11-year timeline to have made fundamental transformations. That's why we've got no more presidential elections to waste and no more congressional cycles to waste and no more anything to waste. From now on in, we better be making the right decisions in sharp time. And, you know, some places are beginning to. New York City just in the last days passed the Green Deal for New York, a really ambitious piece of climate legislation in the world's financial capital. That's a good sign about where the smart money is starting to point. Let's hope we can make it happen fast enough. And we do have models of how to bring big changes when the obstacles seem tremendous in the nonviolent protest movements of the 20th century. That's right. That's the other great technology along with solar panels. And that's the greatest tool that we have. Our job is to change the zeitgeist. The job of the fossil fuel industry is to keep everybody thinking that burning rocks from underground is the normal and obvious way to proceed. And our job is to make it so that people think it's not the obvious way to proceed, that there is a, a clear, better alternative and that we can seize it and seize it fast. We're capable of acting together to do remarkable things. That's what Bill McKibben says in his new book, Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Bill, thanks for everything you do. Back at you, brother. We'll look forward to the next time. Take care. Eric Hobsbawm was everybody's favorite Marxist historian and one of the world's great public intellectuals. His books, especially The Age of Revolution, The Age of Capital, The Age of Empire, and The Age of Extremes, have been translated into 50 languages and have sold millions of copies. Hobsbawm, who died in 2012, was also a tireless political activist. He went to Cuba for the revolution in the 60s. He went to Italy for Eurocommunism in the 70s and 80s. And he was always active in British labor politics. Now he's the subject of a great biography. It's called Eric Hobsbawm, A Life in History. The author is Richard J. Evans. He's also an acclaimed British historian, Regis Professor of History Emeritus at Cambridge University, and author of many award-winning books, especially on the Third Reich and on Hitler. We reached him today in London. Richard Evans, welcome to the program. Hi, it's good to be with you. With Hobsbawm, the story of how he got to be a great historian is really the fascinating part. Uh, let's start in Berlin in 1931. Hobsbawm is 15 years old and an orphan. He arrived from Vienna. Hitler was on the rise. So were the communists. And the 15-year-old declared that he was a communist. How did that happen? Well, he went to school in Berlin, uh, but he uh, had been brought up in Vienna by his parents uh, who were British. Um, they were German-speaking and, and English-speaking. They were bilingual. They died when he was in his early teens, and he looked around for some kind of substitute family, a sense of identity. 
Uh, weirdly, he found it, first of all, in the Boy Scouts. But then when he went to Berlin to live with an uncle and aunt, he was incredibly impressed, swept away by the communist movement. It had 100 seats in the National Parliament. It could throw 100,000 demonstrators onto the streets at a moment's notice. And it looked like it, the communists were the only serious opposition to Hitler and the, and the Nazis by, by that time, by the early 30s. So he read up communist literature and joined the Communist School Students Association, went on a demonstration and became, became hooked on, on the idea of a small-c communism. Remember, this is only 15 years after the Russian Revolution, and like many young people on the left, he was hugely impressed by the ideals of communism and seemed to offer a way out of the vast crisis of the Great Depression. So he and his sister then left Berlin. They were both British citizens because their father uh, had been British. They moved to London. He went to Cambridge University. And when he finished his doctoral dissertation at Cambridge in 1949, you would not have thought he would go on to write books almost every year that would end up selling millions of copies all over the world. In fact, he didn't publish his first book until he was 41. Aspiring writers take note, but how come it took him so long? Was he a victim of Cold War anti-communism? Well, to a degree, yes. I mean, he, he thought of himself as a communist intellectual from the word go, from his teens. So he never did the things that Communist Party members are supposed to, to do, like sell the papers on the street corner and march through the streets and all that kind of stuff. But he did write uh, a couple of books and some articles, and he was a co-founder with other historians in the party, like Christopher Hill and Edward Thompson, of uh, Past and Present, which was uh, the product of the Communist Party Historians Group. And in this, he wrote a couple of, he, he wrote a couple of famous articles still being debated today uh, in the early 50s on uh, the reasons why so many European states got into trouble in the 17th century, wars of religion in France, uh, 30 years war in Germany, civil war in England and so on. And um, he also wrote uh, books, a couple of books on the rise of, of labor on one in particular, he wrote one uh, on the Fabian Society, who were kind of moderate socialists, he's very negative about them, and that wasn't published. And then he wrote one on the rise of wage labor, which was just too left-wing for publishers at the time. So he was a historian, but he's very much a Marxist historian. And that dovetailed with, fascinatingly, with his first marriage, which he thought of as a comradely marriage to another uh, another communist, a communist woman, who um, basically got fed up with it and uh, left him for a, a, another man. And he thought for a bit, he wrote in his diaries, which I had access to, that he thought they could solve it all when, because they were communists. If mother she'd taken a lover, they could sort it out. And they couldn't, of course. So that's really why he took so long, I think, to to publish a book, it wasn't a lack of writing or lack of writing history in article form or book form. It was just because of the Cold War, I guess. 1956 is kind of a turning point. He doesn't publish his first book until a couple of years after that. 1956 is also, of course, a historic year for the world communist movement. I guess we have to talk about uh, Habsbaum in Hungary in 1956. Yeah, 1956 uh, was a real crisis for the communist movement. Uh, thousands and thousands of people left 
to start with, uh, Stalin had died in 53, and his successor, Khrushchev, denounced him and denounced his crimes and his mass murders. And the Communist Party leadership in Britain just refused to acknowledge this. And, and um, Eric Holson became a kind of leader of a movement within the party for more democracy and getting them to acknowledge that they actually had made mistakes in the past by by, by going with Stalin uh, too much. And then in the autumn of 56, this had led in Hungary in particular to a liberal, moderate Communist Party government wanting to democratize the country. And the uh, Soviet Union, the Russians, invaded. And again, uh, Eric Hobsbawm tried to get the party in Britain to oppose this. So he did say, well, it was a tragic necessity, but then to prevent the rise of fascism in Hungary. But uh, he did then demand that the Soviet troops should withdraw. withdraw. So he was uh, an oppositional figure, but he never left the party because he was just too emotionally identified with it. It had become like a substitute family for him when he was an orphan uh, as a a teenager. And uh, I got hold of um, some of the... You know, Secret Service reports, MI5 reports on him, and they were bugging telephones and opening his mail and so on. Though he, I don't think he's ever really uh, a threat in the way that the Cambridge spies were filled to Gertrude McLean, who was somewhat older than he was. Um, he was never in a position to do anything really, apart from apart from write uh, write history and write write political stuff. And they threatened to throw him out because he's been so difficult, and he almost broke down. Said, please, you can't do it. Please don't, please don't throw me out of the party. It was kind of part of his identity. So he never left it, but we, in, in, he never resigned from it uh, until it, it, it collapsed in the early 90s. But he did leave it spiritually and politically. And it's what's really interesting is that from 56 onwards, he started writing a very different kind of history from the rise of wage labor. Uh, it was a much broader based history. The Marxism was much more flexible. And he started looking at history's losers, at marginal people, bandits. He wrote a wonderful little book on, on, on bandits all over the world, a huge kind of reference in many different languages. In those early days, he also wrote about jazz. How did that happen? So his marriage had been dissolved. He got divorced in 1953. And he'd been a jazz fan since the 1930s. A cousin of his, Dennis Preston, was a major, eventually became a major major producer of popular music and records and so on. And um, he needed some money because he'd had to leave Cambridge and go live in London. It was rather more expensive there. You know, he had sort of free free lodgings and free meals in his college in Cambridge up to 1954. And so he got a job as a jazz critic. And so he was teaching evening classes by that time. And he uh, would finish them at nine o'clock and off he'd go to Soho in, in central London to the jazz clubs and the jazz, jazz bars. So he was living amidst marginal people and deviant people, kind of alternative society, at the same time as writing about them. And I found that really rather, rather interesting, the way it kind of dovetailed. You have uh, a memorable anecdote from 1957 when a friend on vacation in southern Italy saw two men in a field and said to her husband, look, it's Eric. And she recalled (laughs) it really was Eric talking to a peasant. He was interviewing the peasant. This is pretty unusual. Historians uh, are usually seen in archives, not in fields in southern Italy talking (laughs) to peasants. That's right, yeah. Well, 
he learned Italian. He already spoke English, French, and, and German. He lived a lot of the time in the 50s in, in France. And um, he got really interested in the fact that he got to know uh, Italian communists. A great friend of his is Giorgio Napolitano, who in the post-communist era became president of Italy. And in, in the 50s, he was uh, still, of course, on uh, Napolitano was still a, a leading member of the communist party in Italy. But the communist Italy were moving towards a a more centrist, sort of more liberal kind of kind of position known as Euro-communism. And uh, Eric Holson identified much more with that than with the hardline Stalinism of the British communist leadership. And he got really intrigued by the fact that in some areas, the communists had been really unusual. They, they'd had, uh, they'd, they'd latched on to peasant discontent, small farmers and so on. Uh, and um, he started writing about what he called primitive rebels. In other words, peasant movements that had not become affiliated to the Communist Party. That was his first book, Primitive Rebels. You say it remained his favorite book for the rest of his life. Italian social bandits, as you say, Sicilian mafia, Spanish anarchists, all disorganized, spontaneous, and undisciplined, not like Communist Party members, but he seemed to have liked them anyway. Exactly, yes. He, he somewhat romanticized them in a way. Uh, I mean, I think he's aware, of course, of, of the fact that bandits in rural Sicily or uh, Catania in southern Italy could also be quite brutal and ruthless towards the local population. But they also had much support from poor people who lived in, in the country. It's a bit like the Robin Hood syndrome, uh, which is recurring through history in many different countries, including in Latin America. So he, he wrote about them with a lot of sympathy, even as he was trying to categorize them as sort of primitive because they hadn't actually let, become organized in any way. The books that uh, followed the age of books, beginning with the age of revolution, were quite different from primitive rebels. They were looking at the big picture, big questions, big forces of change. What led him in that direction? Well, again, it dovetails rather neatly with his personal private life because uh, in the beginning of the 60s, he met and fell in love with Marlena Schwartz, uh, who was uh, worked for the United Nations in Congo, and the Congo had just come back, and they got married and had two kids, and he really settled down after this very disturbed period in the in the 1950s. And that provided him with a kind of stability, and you could see his books then become much more much more synoptic, much more wide-ranging. The Age of Revolution, 1789 to 1848, uh, the history of Europe, this is what he called the Dual Revolution, the French Revolution and the British Industrial Revolution. That book was commissioned by George Weidenfeld, who was a really remarkable publisher with many international connections. He had this idea of publishing a 40-volume history of civilization by different authors. And advised by some friends of his in Oxford, including Isaiah Berlin and Hugh Trevor Robin, he, he asked Hobsbawm to, to do, the, do this. It's a very bold, bold stroke, but they all knew that he read several languages. He actually read all the time. He was constantly assimilating information, and he had a broad-based approach to history because as well as being a Marxist, and his Marxism gradually kind of faded into the background in his later, later writings, he was also very heavily influenced by 
French social and cultural historians. Remember, he was in France for most of the 50s in the university vacations. He actually lived uh, in a menage à trois with a, uh, as they call it, with a, a couple, with a French woman and her husband for much of that time. And so these influences gave the Age of Revolution a, a really original kind of shape and form. It wasn't just about political history, about revolutions. It was also about culture, literature, the arts, about science. So it was a much broader-based kind of, kind of uh, book. What do you think made those age of books so popular? The reason why they became popular, I think, and why they were, they, they were very widely read, they're full of ideas, they're full, and they're not always right, you know, but you can debate them. He, he, his, he was a, a writer of, of his history with ideas, not just as a kind of chronicle, but uh, all interpreting all the time. And he wrote beautifully. His mother was a novelist and a translator, and, and I think she passed some of that on to him, even though she died when he was 14. And he was a bilingual, of course. He, English was his native language just as much as German. And he had this extraordinary memory for anecdote, quotes, for illustrating his ideas and his interpretations. And finally, he gave the big picture. He had big ideas, big interpretations. All of that came together. And that's, I think, the source of his appeal. In those age of books, the Age of Revolution and so on, went on to sell millions of copies, and he was invited all over the world to, to speak. We brought him to my school, UC Irvine, in 1981 to a, a conference on the new social history. You have a little paragraph about it in your book, I was surprised to see. He found our conference at Irvine in 1981, quote, irritating, not to say infuriating, close quote, and I think I know why. I remember we also, right after his talk, we had a panel on the new women's history, and he made some disparaging remarks about feminist history that afternoon, and there was a big blow-up about it. And in fact, I think it's kind of a general uh, weakness of uh, Hobbsbaum's work that he never got very interested in women's history or, or the other new histories of the 80s and 90s. I wish you'd told me about that before I uh, published my book, John. I could have written it in. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, what, Marxism, uh, even if it's a very flexible kind of uh, not dogmatic Marxism of the sort that Eric Hobsbawm practiced, it's, it, it's very good on one hand for interpreting class relations, industrialization, linking the economy to other aspects of history and so on. But it has some central weaknesses too. Uh, and one of them is that it's never, Marxism has never been really able to deal with uh, women in history from, from, from a Marxist point of view. And I think Eric Hobson shared this. Women will be liberated through the revolution. So uh, feminist movement is appears as a kind of diversion from the main aim of, 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 the, uh, of, of the Marxist movement. And of course, that meant that women were marginalized in the communist movement. It's very much a men's movement, I think. You can think of some famous communist women, of course, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, and so on. But, but, but in, in essence, it's bringing about the revolution that, that will liberate women. And there are other blank spots. I mean, he, he spent a lot of time in Latin America, uh, knew a lot about it. He went to India, knew a lot about India, but he never went to Africa. He thought Africa was really unimportant in in, in world history, apart from North Africa, Algeria, and, and, and Libya, and Tunisia, and so on. But, but Sub-Saharan Africa was a kind of blank on his map. 
And I'd say he didn't, he never really understood America, I think. He found America very difficult to cope with. He enjoyed, he went there a lot, he enjoyed going there. Um, I think Irvine was probably a bit of an exception. Though, having been there myself, I can say it's a lovely place full of interesting people. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, um, he, he found it very difficult to understand how America worked. It seemed so different. The age of revolution and the other age of books which followed were massively important works. Hobsbawm taught two generations of students and general readers across the world to see history not as one damn thing after another, but rather as a matter of theme and process, cause and effect, advance and retreat, developments and results. That was huge. Richard Evans' new book is Eric Hobsbawm, A Life in History. It's being published this week by Oxford. Richard Evans, thanks so much for talking with us today. Pleasure to be with you. Finally, on this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, Dave talks about the fight to save Coach Fofo from deportation. Coach Fofo is a native of Togo. He's been a staple for decades in the youth sports scene in Maryland's Montgomery and Prince George counties. Now he fears that if he returns to Togo, he could be targeted for violence for supporting organizations critical of the government there. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.